Scripture in this evening will be from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 21. Leviticus 23, 15 through 21. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an, eth- of an ephah, then they shall be fine flour. They shall be baked with the leaven, they are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. Then you shall pr- proclaim on the same day that it is a convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. you be taking out your Bibles and turning to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23. That's where we will begin our study tonight, Leviticus chapter 23. As I mentioned this morning, we are going to be looking at the Feast of Weeks, what is how it's called, uh, at least uh, in a few passages. There's uh, several names that this feast is given, but as we looked at this morning, that we're trying to adopt a New Testament perspective on some of the Old Testament feasts that you have in uh, Scripture that's recorded there. And as we looked at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread this morning and looking at some lessons that we can learn from that as Christians and how that is still something that is significant for us, at least in its ideas that are presented there, What I want us to look at tonight is what we would call the Feast of Weeks, or as we probably better know it as the Feast of Pentecost. There are several important associations with this feast, as we will look at in a moment. But as we mentioned this morning just briefly, that I think whenever we understand the New Testament, we then have to take the New Testament and we have to look back and read backwards into the Old Testament. In Colossians chapter 2, just briefly, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, I think this is what the Apostle Paul means here. He says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And even all the Old Testament... uh, activities of sacrifices and the priesthood, the tabernacle, and even these feast days, they are pointing to something that we see in Jesus Christ. I think we showed that this morning with Passover, how Jesus is our Passover lamb and things like that. But what I want us to look at this evening is the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost and how there is there are some important lessons there for us as Christians in Leviticus chapter 23. 
And in verse 15, as we heard in our reading, he said, You shall count, also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. Counting fifty days is significant because if you count seven Sabbaths, seven times seven days in a week, 49, I know that from math, I'm not good at math, but say don't do math in the pulpit, but I know that one, seven times seven is 49, plus one is 50. That gets you to the first day of the week, which is highly symbolic and significant for Christians, isn't it? And so whenever we read Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, that is a first day of the week celebration, if you will, of them coming together to hear the gospel proclaimed, hearing about Jesus Christ enthroned in heaven. And that is the day that we continue to still worship and assemble and meet as Christians today. So obviously this has some significance for us, but then he goes on in verse 17, you shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And those are going to be two of our ideas that we look at tonight. The idea of first fruits and the idea of leaven. But as we just introduce ourselves a little bit to the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, it was a celebration of the new grain and the first of the harvest of a new planting season. In the Old Testament, the Feast of Pentecost goes by several different names, in fact. The Feast of Weeks in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 10. It's also called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus chapter 23. It's called the Day of First Fruits in the book of Numbers. And then you have the name Pentecost that it is given as well. That in, uh, in the Greek New Testament, in the Septuagint, is called Pentecost because of the 50 days and the prefix penta meaning 50. And so what you see is that this is something that would have been corresponding to our months May or June, about 50 days after Passover. And so it was certainly celebrated in the spring of the year in anticipation of God's blessing and His favor for a new harvest and a new planting season. In the book of Deuteronomy, I think you can see this here in Deuteronomy chapter 16. In Deuteronomy chapter 16 and in verse 10, it says, Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. That this is a feast that's celebrated in expectation of what God is going to do for the children of Israel. That this is something that they were going to celebrate in anticipation of what God was going to provide them with in His care and His abundance for them. And the Feast of Pentecost, by the time you come to the New Testament, it was a very well-attended feast, especially in New Testament times, because of the ease of travel, especially in contrast to Passover. What one commentator said, it was also one of the most popular pilgrim festivals, even more so than Passover, which was likely due to the improved weather conditions by the time of Pentecost. That, that extra month and a half or so, you would get 
some better travel conditions. And I think you see that play out even in very small ways in the writing of the New Testament in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his third missionary journey. And Luke adds this little bit of information here. I think it's fascinating that as you really begin to explore some of these things, how even the small minor details that we might just read in passing, they have some significance and connection. In Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 16, as Paul is beginning to hurry his, and begin his way to Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 16, it says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And he was trying to arrange his arrival there in time for the celebration of Pentecost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in one of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and in verse 8, he says to the church of Corinth, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. That This was a, a time frame in which he was going to either travel just before or a little bit after that. That He was using that as a point in time where he could use that as uh, something that he could say, this is when I'm going to begin or end my travels. So what does the significance of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost have for us as Christians? Well, if we're talking about Acts chapter 2, I think we all recognize the importance of the significance of the day of Pentecost there. But I think even more broadly speaking, we can see some ideas that are associated with the celebration of the Feast of Weeks even in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. And just as Pentecost celebrated the first fruits of the new wheat harvest, I believe it is very fitting that Pentecost was the occasion for the first fruits that would come to Christ. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, on in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come. They were all gathered all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And you continue on in this where... Peter begins to take a prominent speaking role and he quotes from the prophet Joel of the Old Testament about the coming of the Spirit. We'll have some more things to say about that. But then he begins to preach Jesus to them and how Jesus had been killed and crucified, how they had taken Him and handed Him over. He was innocent, yet He was someone that they had delivered over to godless men. And God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Him to the right hand of God, seating Him at His own right hand. And now Jesus reigns as our King in verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And you remember then after that occasion, after that statement that Peter uh, the people asked Peter and the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? 
And Peter answers them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it says in verse 31, so, 41, So then those who had received His word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The first converts to Christ, the first fruits, if you will, of Christianity that came to Christ that day. And that's exactly how new converts are usually called, at least a few times in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and in verse 15, Paul, as he's closing out that letter to Corinth, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Paul says that the household of Stephanus, they were the first fruits, or they were the first converts of Achaia. That these folks were the first ones to accept Christ and to become a faithful follower of Him. Now they're dedicated and they're uh, serving the Lord with the fullness of their abilities and power. As James would write in James chapter 1, in James chapter 1, and in verse 18, as James is writing, he says in verse 18, "...in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be kind, a kind of firstfruits among His creatures." And as we come to believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and as we are converted to Christ, we become a firstfruit. We become one of the firstfruits. Also, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 14, in Revelation chapter 14 and in verse 4, as John is seeing this vision of the 144,000 on Mount Zion, he describes the character of those that he is seeing. He says, there are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Those who come to believe in Christ, you are the firstfruits, the first of the harvest. Harvest that would come to have faith in Jesus Christ. Those who would come to Christ, as we see throughout Scripture, that they confess Jesus as their Lord. They, they demonstrate their faith through that confession. They repent of their sins. They're baptized in water to, for the remission of their sins. When someone does that, they become a first fruit and we celebrate with them for God's blessing and His provision of salvation. Just as the Feast of Weeks was celebrated by the Jews in the Old Testament, that that comes to its fullness in Christ. Where the old is removed and new life is found. 
Then secondly, we see that Pentecost is associated with the coming of the Spirit, especially in the book of Acts and in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? In Acts chapter 2, as we read at the, at the beginning of that chapter, that the Spirit comes upon the apostles, and, and uh, there's that noise from heaven like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they were beginning to speak in tongues. And then you have what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. People were wondering what's going on because they were saying, hey, these guys are just drunk. It's early in the morning and they're drunk. They're acting all kinds of strange. But Peter says that's not so. This is what Joel was talking about and prophesying about. In verse 17, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of My Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on My bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of My Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you have the coming of the Spirit and what Peter says is that this is exactly what Joel was prophesying about. In, later on in verse 33, it says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear, that the coming of the Spirit was promised by the Father. The gift of the Spirit becomes available. And when you repent and are baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Christians, we carry out what, was, what began in Pentecost even today, don't we? Not the miraculous ability to speak in tongues and perform miracles, but the life that began that's associated with the Spirit, the new life. In the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, in Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 16, Paul describes our lives as Christians in this way. In Galatians 5 and verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Later on in verse 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And our lives as Christians, it's supposed to be characterized by this new life that we have in the Spirit that began on the day of Pentecost. I know sometimes we think of the charismatic movement and where people have called themselves Pentecostals, remember? Yeah, they take that name, don't they? Because they believe in the charismatic gifts of the Spirit and things of that nature. Tell you, we don't have to be charismatic to be walking in the Spirit and living by the Spirit. 
We walk by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit when we do what the Spirit says. In verse 22 of Galatians, and in Galatians 5 and verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is when we put those characteristics into our lives. That is when we are truly walking by the Spirit. It doesn't take doing miraculous gifts. It doesn't take having a, a feeling or a sensation in your palm of your hand. It is when we do what the Spirit says. When we turn away from sin and wickedness. He describes that very clear in Galatians 5. Paul does, doesn't he? In verse 19, he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we are to walk by the Spirit. We are to avoid the things of the flesh. We are to be producing the fruit of the Spirit. And when we have this new life in Christ, and when we are following the Spirit's teachings and doing what the Spirit has revealed, then we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. In Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, and in verse 2, in Romans 8 and in verse 2, Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. I want you to notice here, he calls it the law of the Spirit, doesn't he? That the law of the Spirit has set you free from sin and death. The Gospel, the, the Word that the Spirit has revealed, that is what has set us free. And then we are to continue walking in that. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 5, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That when we set our mind and our focus and our attention on the things of the Spirit, then we're going to produce the things that the Spirit wants us to. He goes on in verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. He goes on in verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We need to be led by the Spirit. That doesn't have to be some miraculous kind of thing. That is whenever we are following what the Spirit has instructed and revealed for us to follow. That when we do the things of the Spirit, then we are doing what God wants us to. And we have the Spirit within us. 
And so whenever you think about Pentecost and the idea of the first fruits, we are producing the fruit the Spirit wants us to produce. We are that Spirit. Then our third and final point for this evening takes us back to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 17. As I mentioned at the beginning of our study is that what we see here in association with the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, the idea of the first fruits and the second idea of leaven. This morning we talked about leaven a little bit, didn't we? And how the leaven was purged from the house and a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough and how leaven is oftentimes and most often in the Bible used as a negative metaphor of sin or wickedness, idolatry, unfaithfulness to God. And I said there is an exception to that rule. Come back tonight so you came back. Here's what you came for. In contrast to Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost was a celebration that required leaven in the bread. In Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 17, notice what God says here through Moses. He says, You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And here now we see that 50 days after the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, now the We have a new starter. We have more leaven that we have brought into the house to be used. Leaven causes growth, doesn't it? It produces growth. I think it's an extremely fitting metaphor for what's going to begin on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because in the Gospel according to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 13... In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses leaven in one of His parables. And it's not here associated with anything sinful or negative. If anything, it would probably be just a neutral use of leaven. In Matthew chapter 13 and in verse 33, He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And the leaven has a leavening effect, doesn't it? That it permeates and it grows and it spreads. That's what it's supposed to do. As one commentator said, the leaven was but a small amount But in time, it changed the large quantity of flour like the precious, 
Like the previous parable, this one brings out the contrast and the continuity between the small beginnings of the kingdom and its great consummation. The little group of disciples might be despised as preaching a kingdom too insignificant to be noticed, but as surely as a tiny piece of leaven had its effect on a large massive dose, so surely would the kingdom have its effect throughout the world. The parable also makes the point that the power that affects the change comes from outside the dough. The mass of dough does not change itself. And all you have to do is look at the growth in the church in the book of Acts, don't you? In Acts chapter 1, beginning there, Jesus is still with the twelve apostles. It's actually 11 at that point because they don't have Matthias yet. Matthias is then accepted in to have that number 12. There's just a small band of fishermen along with Jesus. And then later on at the end of chapter 1, you find out that there's 120 that are there with the apostles. And that just multiplies very quickly, doesn't it, by the end of chapter 2? Because then you have 3,000 that have come to believe in Christ. By the time you get to Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4 and in verse 4, we learn that the number of the men numbered to be about 5,000. And so if you just doubled that, because there are certainly... I think we certainly learned that there are probably more women than uh, men who are converted to Christ. You probably have eight to ten thousand there. Is really what the number has come to be in just a very short amount of time. By the time you get deeper into the book of Acts, for instance, in Acts chapter 17, in Acts chapter 17, notice the descriptions here. In Acts chapter 17 and in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. In verse 12, Therefore many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. And you have these large numbers and many Gentiles who are coming to believe in Christ. That the church has started with just these 12 guys that Jesus was with and He was teaching to 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 men to now we just have large numbers and many who are coming. And then by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, what began in Jerusalem in that area in Galilee... You have ending in the city of Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire. And what we are supposed to take away from that is that now Christianity is not just some uh, small sect that began in uh, the Palestine. That now it is a global Religion. It is a worldwide thing. That happened in roughly 30 years, 35 years. 
Can you imagine? That's hard for me to imagine because I'm, I'm 35 years old. I'll be 36 next week. Like, that's tough for me to imagine. That's my whole life right there. That something would have be, had begun with that kind of a small thing to that expansive of a thing. But that's what leaven does, doesn't it? It's capable of doing that, and that's why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. That it is able to grow and reproduce and multiply. And it's able to have an effect everywhere. The kingdom of God can have an influence over this world. In fact, that's what Jesus called on His disciples to go and do, wasn't it? In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, He told His disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. I think sometimes it's easy for us to feel like we are such a minority in our society and our culture, and indeed that it may be true, but I think it's easy for us to then think we cannot affect everyone, that culture has to affect us. And that is not so. That's a lie that Satan wants us to believe and be deceived by. If we will be faithful, if we will be zealous, if we will be committed to the cause of Christ and His kingdom, then we can have a greater impact of the, on this world than it, this world can have on us. We may not always see it. It might have happen one conversation at a time might happen just one day at lunch whenever you're sitting with people at work and they're talking in a way that they shouldn't be talking about and you say, hey, I don't want to hear that because I'm a Christian. I don't talk that way. I don't want to hear that kind of thing. Standing for what's right, it's not always easy. But if you do it one day at a time, one step at a time, you can help change this world Jesus said you could that's the nature of the kingdom and it's always been that way and Jesus told his disciples to go preach the gospel into this world and we have that same mission and so we must continue to do that In Acts chapter 2, on that first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection, I think we begin to see the significance, the true significance of what the Feast of Weeks was pointing towards. I was anticipating the true harvest, the spiritual harvest of those who had come to Jesus Christ. And the people that were there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, they asked, what shall we do? Tonight you might be thinking, what should I do? 
What's required of me? If I'm going to come believe in Christ, if I'm going to have my sins forgiven, if I'm going to be saved, how do I do that? What Peter said, repent and be baptized. You'll receive the gift, or the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, we're happy to help you. The water is ready. We stand prepared to help you. If you have become a Christian, but you've not been living faithfully for the Lord, you've not been walking in accordance with the Spirit, if you've been turning away from the gospel and the truth, and you've turned to the works of the flesh, will you repent of those things tonight? We're here to help you. If we can help you in some way tonight, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?